It is the best-selling book in the history of the world. In fact, according to surveys, as you heard in our video, almost 90% of Americans say they own at least one Bible. That's the good news. The bad news is only about 20% of those who own Bibles say that they read it with any regularity. However, a couple of good statistics that come out of surveys, 61% of Americans say they wish they read the Bible more. They wish they read the Bible more. And 91% of the newcomers to churches around the country say that the reason they're coming to church is out of a curiosity to understand what this book says to their lives. So if that's you, uh, you come to the right place. In fact, today is the first week in a four-part Uh, campaign we're calling it. It's not just a sermon series, it's a campaign. It's called Aha Moments, the Joy of Understanding the Bible. There are four, uh, rather three parts to this campaign. I want to familiarize you with them and challenge you to participate in this campaign. Part one is this, read the Bible on a daily basis. So if you're going to be here, part of this campaign, next four weeks, make a commitment, you're going to read the Bible on a daily basis. Now, you're going to do this on your own. However, we're all going to be following the same Bible reading schedule. That Bible reading schedule comes to us through an organization called Scripture Union. They've been around for years. They operate in 20 different countries around the world. And so they've been printing this uh, Bible reading schedule for for a long time. takes you once through the Bible every five years. So it's like 10 minutes of Bible reading a day. Think you can do that? 10 minutes of Bible reading a day. How do you access that schedule? Two ways to do it. We've got hard copies of the schedule, comes out in a booklet. If you want the booklet, looks like that. Go to the adult ministries counter at any one of our four campuses and we'll give you your own copy. Now, unfortunately, the the booklet comes out four times a year and this one covers October, November, and December and there's still one week left in September. So what do you read for this next week? We've got a little card that goes with a booklet that will tell you what to read for the last week in September. So you can get a hard copy if you're a hard copy person. If you're an electronic copy uh, sort of individual, then you could go online to Scripture Union and look for the Encounters with God Bible reading schedule, and you could have it sent directly to your iPhone or to your iPad or to your PC, uh, and it comes at 4 a.m. every day. Anybody read their Bible before 4 a.m.? Didn't think so? Okay. So you'll have it in plenty of time. Uh, Read the Bible on a daily basis. That's part one of the campaign. Part two, join a community group and, and discuss my book, Context, How to Understand the Bible. So get yourself in a community group. We've got 300 and some adult community groups spread across four campuses here at Christ Community Church. So there's one that will be convenient for you meeting time-wise and and whatever, men's groups, women's groups, couples groups. Get in a community group and work through this book context. It's a short book, four chapters long, one chapter per week, okay? And it gives you a clue uh, how to understand the Bible, interpret it accurately. There's a lot of misinterpretation going on out there when people pick up a Bible and read it. People either read into the Bible something that's not there, or or they miss something completely that God put there, and and they just miss it because they, they misinterpret. They don't know how to accurately interpret the Bible. And so the book Context tells you how to do that. The key word is the title of that book, Context. Context means everything when reading the Bible. Let me illustrate what I mean by, by context. How many of you have ever put together a jigsaw puzzle? Raise your hand. Okay, 
Good. Most of you have. Uh, in my family, we like to do this at holiday gatherings. And so a jigsaw puzzle will be out on a table, and whether you're watching a ball game and come and put in a, a piece during a commercial break, or you're taking a nap and uh, come out and put in a couple of pieces, uh, when it's all done, my wife puts this Mod Podge over it and then hangs them in our uh, family room in the basement. And so we're, we're decorated with, with, with puzzles. But one of the things I've discovered is that if you're holding one of those thousand pieces in your hand and you want to know where it goes... It's critical that you have what? The box cover to look at, right? So you need the big picture, the box cover, in order to know where that little piece of the puzzle fits. It's just like that when reading God's Word. You're going to read a little piece of that Word. You're going to read a verse or a paragraph, maybe a chapter's worth. But if you want to understand it correctly, you've you got to know what the big picture is. You've got to know the context of the Bible. And the book, Context, covers four kinds of context. We're going to consider the first one today, historical context, the setting, the historical setting for whatever passage of Scripture you're reading. You're going to get that, too, in your community group over the next four weeks. By the way, just a footnote to this. Uh, We've got thousands of people in community groups, but over the last couple of weeks, we've had over 500 new people sign up for community groups. So pretty, pretty incredible. Now, I, just, I say that as a word of caution, too, because when you're trying to place over 500 people in, in groups, it's a pretty difficult thing to do, and I always fear if we should lose your name, if you should fall in the cracks, I don't want you leaving Christ Community Church saying, that big church doesn't care for me. Okay, it's just because this is a... This is a difficult task. So if we drop the ball in some way, come back at us. Or if you end up in a group and it doesn't seem well-suited to you, then check out another group. We want you eventually in a group where you can grow in your knowledge of God's Word and apply it to your life. So that's the second part of the campaign. First part, you read the Bible daily. Second part, you get in a, in a community group and you discuss this book, context, rules for interpreting the Bible accurately. Third part of the campaign is to attend weekend services at Christ Community Church. Do it every one of the four weeks of this series. And note carefully how the sermons tie together the daily Bible readings with the principles in the book context. This is the genius of the campaign. So you're reading through the Bible following the Scripture Union reading schedule. So if you were following that schedule this past week, you would have read through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. There is no 4 John and the book of Jude. You would have read Jude just yesterday. And so we're going to take one of those passages from the the daily readings. Every week I'll take one of those passages. This week I'm going to take Jude, and we're going to apply the chapter in context that the community groups are covering. So they're covering this chapter on historical setting. We're going to take a look at Jude from the perspective of its historical setting. You with me? Following all this, if it all comes together, it's going to be a sweet deal. Okay, and you're going to really understand God's Word. And if you're thinking to yourself, but this sounds a bit academic to me, let me say, when when we get done today studying the historical setting of Jude, it's going to be very practical. You're going to find life application. In fact, the the better you understand the historical setting of any passage you read, the better you, you are at applying it to your life. Now, when I talk about historical setting, what do I mean? Well, I mean the, the answers to the five journalistic questions. Now, if, if you ever took a journalism class in high school, 
or you were on the yearbook staff, or you work for the newspaper, you know what the five journalistic questions are. They're, they're one-word questions. They all begin with the same letter, the letter W. So if you think you know what they are, say them with me. The five journalistic questions are who, what, when, where, why. You are an exceptionally bright group. Okay, way to go, and I hope you got it at the regional campuses as well. Who, what, when, where, why? We're going to take a look at Jude from the perspective of those questions. Now, just one footnote to this whole thing before we jump into Jude. And by the way, if you brought a Bible, start looking for Jude now. Big hint, second to last book of the Bible. Okay, so go to Revelation and then then back up one, one book. Okay, so take a look. Take a look at Jude with me. And one last comment I want to make. If you're wondering, hey, this is cool if you're going to preach on this stuff, but when I'm sitting at home with my Bible, it's 7 a.m., I'm at the kitchen table with my cup of coffee and a Bible. How do I answer the who, what, when, where, why questions? Where do I get this information? And this is going to be really important tomorrow morning because you know where the schedule takes us tomorrow morning? To the book of Nahum, N-A-H-U-M. How many of you are familiar with the book of Nahum? Yeah, didn't think so. Okay, so you're going to be saying tomorrow morning, where is Pastor Jim when you need him? And the the truth is you don't need me. Okay, what you do need, and this will cost you a few bucks, you need an NIV study Bible. Study. How many of you have a study Bible? Raise your hand. Lots of you. Way to go. Okay, in a study Bible, every book of the Bible has a two or three page introduction giving you all the historical background. So it's right there. And then there are footnotes on every page, so when you come across something difficult in a verse you don't understand, especially having to do with the historical background, you'll find it in a footnote. Most of what you're going to hear from me today about Jude, you know, I didn't glean from years and years ago into school. I got got it out of my NIV study Bible. In fact, I not only have a hard copy, I've got the phone app NIV study Bible too, so it goes with me wherever I go. So, let's take a look at Jude. We're going to begin with the who question. Who wrote, who wrote the book of Jude? And the answer is not Paul McCartney. Okay, he wrote, hey Jude, something entirely different, which, by the way, is number 10 on Billboard's list of all-time pop hits. Number 10. This has nothing to do with the sermon. It's just, you know, a fun fact for you. But I, I got to tell you, as I'm studying Jude this week, I couldn't get the song out of there, hey Jude, don't make it bad. Yeah, and then as I wrapped up, I'd be doing this, na, 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 Judy, 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 Judy. Anyway, yeah, don't tell me it wasn't going through your mind too. So who wrote Jude? Jude. Yeah, good guess. A dude named Jude. Uh, now, Jude is a shortened version of the Greek name Judas, just like my name Jim is a shortened version of James. Jude is a shortened version of Judas. Judas is a Greek translation uh, or transliteration of the Hebrew name Judah. A very popular name. Back in the first century, there would have been a lot of Jewish boys and men running around with the name Judas. Now, after Jesus was betrayed by a guy named Judas, there are six different Judases in the Bible. One of them was a disciple of Jesus who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. If you were a Christ follower and got stuck with the name Judas, you shortened it to Jude. Okay, because after this guy ruined the name, you didn't want the name Judas. So this Jude, 
had probably shortened his name from Judas. And who is he? Well, look at the opening verse. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So he's a brother a brother of James. Now, James was also a popular name in the first century, but there was one James so familiar with everybody that all you had to do was say James, and everybody knew who you were talking about. This James was the leader of the early Christian movement. He was in charge of the church, the early church in the city of Jerusalem. And this James also happened to be a half-brother of Jesus. Okay, so, so Mary conceives Jesus by the Holy Spirit, but uh, afterwards Mary and Joseph have additional children, some of them boys, and they are half-brothers of Jesus, Jesus one of them by the name of James. Okay, so uh, Jude identifies himself as a brother of James. Now, if Jude is the brother of James and James is a brother, half-brother of Jesus, then Jude is the brother of Jesus. You say, well, why didn't he just say so? What's this Jude, a brother of James? Why doesn't he say Jude, a brother of Jesus? Probably a couple of reasons. Uh, First, he may be just a little bit embarrassed over the fact that during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he was not a believer in Jesus. Okay, He didn't believe his own brother. In fact, he and his other brothers mocked Jesus. It wasn't until after the resurrection that Jude became a believer in, a follower of Jesus Christ. So he, he, he may be a bit reticent about you know, calling himself brother of Jesus because he'd been a horrible brother. Second reason is... Jude was just a really humble guy. He wasn't a name dropper. He wasn't a guy who wanted stamped on his business card, brother of you-know-who, the the Jesus. It was just just Jude, servant of Jesus Christ, humble guy. Now, I want to underscore that as we begin our study today, because as we go through the book of Jude, this guy says some pretty in-your-face things. And so you you may be tempted to walk away saying, he's kind of condescending or arrogant, maybe a bit harsh. But I want you to know that's not his character at all. He was a gracious man, a gentle man, a loving man. But he was willing to say some hard things. Okay, Say some hard things to whom? That's the other side of the who journalistic question. We now know who wrote it. To whom did he write? Well, the epistle doesn't say doesn't tell us who he was writing to. As we read the epistle, we get the idea, obviously they're Christ followers, but we get the idea they must have been Christ followers with a Jewish background. And and the reason I say that is because he makes a lot of allusions to Old Testament stories as well as references to Jewish literature. And, And so they had to have been Christ followers who had some kind of Jewish background. However, They were Jewish Christians living in a very secular pagan culture. They were probably not living in Israel proper. And the reason I say that is because some of the sins that he confronts in this epistle, most notably the sin of sexual immorality, was not typical, um, not a typical sin you'd find in Jewish circles. It was more a reflection of a pagan Greek culture. It was more like the culture, quite frankly, of 21st century good old U.S. of A., Okay, so those are the people to whom he was writing. Journalistic question number two, what? What was Jude writing about? What was the main theme of his letter? Well, most of the New Testament epistles are are what Bible scholars refer to as occasional letters. 
Now, when they call them occasional letters, they don't mean that they were letters written every once in a while. What they mean by occasional is that they were letters written for specific occasions. Okay, there was usually some problem afoot that needed to be addressed. And so an apostle would step up and he would address it in one of his epistles. So what is the problem that Jude is addressing in his epistle? We find it in verse 4, if you've got your own Bible. Let's jump in at verse 4. Let me read it to you. You'll see it on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Jude says, Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So what problem was Jude addressing when he wrote to these Christ followers? Look again, he was confronting people, middle of the verse, who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality. What does that mean? One Bible scholar explains it this way. He says, these people assume that the grace of God revealed in Christ gives them the liberty to do just about anything they want to do. Okay, the grace of God gives them the liberty to do whatever they want to do. In other words, if you want to sleep with the girl you're dating, that's okay. If you want to get drunk at parties, no problem. If you want to spend all your money lavishly on yourself, if you want to cuss like a sailor, if you want to fill your mind with all sorts of garbage off the internet and from movies, no big deal because God loves you so much that he thinks whatever you do is cool. And even if God should object to any of your behaviors, he's a forgiving God. So just tell him sorry after an offense and you're good to go. Well, Jude warns that that sort of an attitude is dangerously mistaken. That sort of an attitude is dangerously mistaken. Jude warns that this is a perversion of God's grace, which is why I've called today's sermon Abusing Grace. That's the what of his New Testament epistle. That's the theme of the epistle, Abusing Grace. Journalistic question number three, when? When was Jude written? This is a really interesting question. Let me explain why. Once again, Jude doesn't tell us in his epistle when it was written. However, Bible scholars have noted that there's a lot of uh, the, the same material you'll find in the New Testament epistle of Jude, you'll also find in the New Testament epistle of 2 Peter. And, and it's obvious that one of the guys was borrowing from the other. When one of them sat down to write his letter, he probably had the other guy's letter sitting on the table right in front of him. So much of the material is similar. So the question over the years that Bible scholars have wrestled with is, did Peter borrow from Jude to write Second Peter, or did Jude borrow from Peter to write Jude? You following this? And I won't go into the arguments, but suffice it to say, I think the evidence points in the direction of Jude borrowing from Peter, which means that Jude was written after Peter. Now, hang in there with me. And we kind of know when 2 Peter was written, because 2 Peter tells us it was written toward the end of Peter's life, and we know that, that, that Peter was put to death. Some say he was crucified upside down at his own request. Okay, when they decided to put him to death, he said, I don't want to die like my Savior. You know, you could do it upside down, whether that's just tradition or the truth. Uh, he died somewhere in the mid-60s. He'd written 2 Peter just before that. If Jude was written after 2 Peter, borrowed from 2 Peter, it had to have been, been written sometime after AD 65. 
and yet probably before A.D. 80. Now, why would I say before A.D. 80? Well, if he's a brother of Jesus and he lived to the ripe old age of what? How long would you live then? Maybe 80 years? He probably wrote the epistle sometime before A.D. 80. So sometime between 65 and A.D. 80. You see, New Testament scholars are like detectives, okay? They're putting all the clues together. Journalist to question number four, where? Where did Jude's letter go? Where did the address on the envelope direct the post office to send this epistle? Well, I kind of answered that question when I told you to whom Jude was writing. You know, he doesn't tell us to whom he's writing. We're, we're, we're guessing it's Jewish Christ followers who are living in a very secular environment, Greek pagan environment. But he doesn't say exactly where. Now, when the Apostle Paul writes letters, we, we know to what city he's writing. When he writes to the Philippians, we know that the letter is going to the city of what? Philippi. Okay, when he writes a letter to the Ephesians, it's going to the city of? Ephesus. But there are some New Testament epistles that have no address on them. They're, they're what scholars consider to be general epistles. They were pass-around epistles. They, they'd go to one church, and when that church was done with it, they'd pass it on to another church, and it, it would make the circuit. Now, the reason I tell you that is because you can be pretty sure that there was universal application of these general epistles, because they're going all over. Which means that Jude is going to say something to us today in the 21st century in America. Okay, these are words for us. I mean, if you're a person who wants to be spiritual, following God in the midst of a pagan culture where sexual immorality runs rampant, that's us, right? Okay, this book, this book is for us. Last journalistic question, number five, why? Why did Jude pen this epistle? Well, he answers that question right at the top of his letter. I mean, he, he barely begins, gets the greeting down on paper, and then jumps to the why of writing. Now, this is somewhat unusual with respect to New Testament epistles. If you read one of Paul's New Testament epistles, after the greeting, he usually goes to a few verses of thanksgiving. He thanks God for the people to whom he's writing. And then he moves into a little prayer. Here's my prayer for you guys. So it's greeting, thanksgiving, prayer. Now I'll tell you why I wrote. Jude starts with a greeting and then jumps to, let me tell you why I wrote. So there's something so pressing. There's so, something so important to Jude that he jumps right into it. And we pick it up in verse 3. Let me read verse 3 to you. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write you about the salvation we share... I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Okay, why is Jude writing these guys? Well, Jude says, to be honest, I, you know, when I first sat down with a piece of parchment and a pen, I planned to write an entirely different kind of letter. I, you know, I was going to write a feel-good, happy thoughts letter about the salvation we share in Christ, and then I got some news I didn't like. I got news that in your midst there are some people who are abusing grace. Some people who are treating grace like it's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Like, like you could claim to be a Christ follower and, and live as you darn well please. And, and so I decided, Jude says, I decided to write an entirely different kind of letter. I decided to write a, a butt-kicking letter. Butt-kicking's in the original Greek. You won't find it in the English there. So... 
You know, I, I, I decided to write you a letter, look at verse 3, that urges you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Okay, God wants you to be holy. God wants you to contend for the faith. Contend was a, uh, a verb from the world of sports in Jude's day. It painted a picture of an athlete who was exerting all his energy, giving, giving it everything he's got in order to win. So what, what is it that, that Jude wants us to win at? Well, he wants us to win at the, at the Christian faith, to contend for the faith, to defend the truth of the Christian faith against people who want to twist it or distort it or abuse it, whether by false teaching or by ungodly lifestyles. See, th this is why we so desperately need the message of Jude today. Because the highest value in contemporary American culture has become tolerance. And by tolerance, uh, we, we mean anything goes. So believe whatever you want to believe. Yeah, it's just, you believe something, but whatever you want. Live any way you want to live. God is good with that. And Jude retorts, no, he's not. God values truth over tolerance. There are right things to believe. There are right ways to live. Contend for the faith. Beginning with your own life, contend for the faith. Now, that's the historical setting for Jude. Those are the answers to the journalistic questions, the who, why, who, what, when, where, why questions. But I want to turn the corner now. I want to bring it home to some personal application. I want to take a look at four balanced views of grace because we've been looking at grace as it's been abused. That's why he's writing this epistle. So, so pushing back against the distortion of grace, I want to give you four balanced statements that also come out of this New Testament epistle that you can take away with you. It's so important that we have a balanced view of whatever Christian doctrine we're looking at. When it comes to wrongheadedness in our thinking about God or salvation or the Bible or, or whatever, most of us don't fall prey to extreme error. You know, we can spot extreme error from a mile away. What we fall prey to, friend, is just a little bit of imbalance, but if it goes unchecked in our lives, it, it's like an unbalanced tire on your car. You're, you know, your car needs align, alignment, and you're constantly pulling against it, and on an occasion you let your hands off the wheel, you're going to end up in the ditch. So unless you, you correct an imbalance in your thinking about God, about salvation, about the Bible, about what, whatever, your life is going to end up in the ditch. So four balanced statements about grace. Here's number one. The Christian faith consists of both behaviors and beliefs. That's the balance. The Christian faith consists of both behaviors and beliefs. Some professing Christ followers think that Christianity is mostly about behaviors. So tell the truth, don't sleep around, give generously to worthy causes, work hard, invest time in your family. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Jude would say, well, you know, that is how a Christian should behave. But there are also certain things a Christian should believe. Look again at verse 3. Okay? Jude challenges us to contend for what? Call it out. The faith. Let's do that again. He urges us to contend for 
The faith, if you got your own Bible, underline the faith and under the, put a capital T-H-E. Capital T, capital H, capital E, the faith. One Bible scholar writes that when Jude speaks of the faith, he's saying that there is a set of beliefs based in the teaching and work of Christ, developed and passed on by the apostles, that is non-negotiable. And so to be a Christian is to agree with these beliefs, and to reject them is to cease to be a Christian. I I hope you follow that. I hope you understand that you're not free to believe whatever you want to believe and still, still consider yourself a Christ follower. You, you can't reject what, whatever biblical truth you, you don't care for and still say, I'm a Christian. Now, true Christ followers believe certain things. It's what makes you a Christ follower. Now you say, what are those things? Well, I think if you want a quick little summary of them... Uh, Pastor Jameson, last weekend, he covered our, our little blue booklet, the God Good News, God's Good News booklet. If, if you, you want a summary, that's a good place to begin. If you missed that, by the way, really important message that closed out our Storytellers series, I'd encourage you to go online and listen to it, but also pick up a little blue booklet for yourself. You know, the Christian faith is about beliefs, but it's also about behaviors, and there's the balance See, the troublemakers that Jude was addressing in this epistle thought that they could believe in Christ but behave any way they wanted to behave. And particularly, you know, they used grace as a license, verse 4 says, for immorality. Now, the Bible's word immorality refers to sins that have to do with any misuse of the body. Okay, so it could be sexual sins, it could be gluttony, it could be drunkenness. Okay, if you misuse your body, that's immorality in biblical terms. However, most often immorality is a reference to sexual immorality. You say, what's sexual immorality? It's any deviation from what God's word teaches is the, the right purpose, God's purpose for sexuality, for sexual relationship. You say, well, what, what's that? Well, you go to the beginning of the Bible, the first book of the Bible, the, the book of Genesis, and it spells it out. God, God has designed sex to be super glue in a marriage relationship. So sex brings a husband and wife intimacy and bondedness and mutual enjoyment and pleasure and occasionally kids. Okay, so that, that's what sex is all about. Any misuse of it, any Use of sex outside of a marriage relationship is what the Bible refers to immorality. So that would include what? That would would include sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. That would include cheating on on your spouse and having a relationship with someone you're, you're not married to. That would include engaging in homosexual behaviors. That would include even virtual sex, masturbating to pornography on the Internet. A misuse of sexuality. Immorality. And Jude is saying, you can can say all you want about what you believe about God, what you believe about salvation, but the Christian faith is more than beliefs, it's also behaviors. And so true Christ followers obey his word, which leads us to the second balance. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. Now, I know a lot of people who think they can have Jesus as Savior without having to have Jesus as Lord of their lives. And I want to tell you, that's nonsense. You know, a Jesus with a split personality? Really? 
You know, so you can have the Savior part of Jesus and skip the Lord part? I don't think so. And it's not only nonsense, it leads to an abuse of grace. Now, I'm not denying for a moment that Jesus wants to be your Savior. I love the Savior language that Jude uses to describe Jesus in the opening verses of his epistle and then in the closing verses. Let me read those two portions to you. Begin in the middle of verse 1. He says, To those who have been called, who are loved, loved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, love be yours in abundance. This is the Savior part of Jesus. Go to the close of the epistle, verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our what? Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. You know, a lot of Savior language in Jude. As he tells us how lavishly God loves us, the great lengths to which God has gone to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. Jesus is Savior. That's such good news. But there's also a lot of Lord language in this epistle to describe Jesus. And Jude comes down pretty hard on the rebellious streak in human nature. You know, that that tendency in all of our lives to resist authority. Go back to the verse I read at the beginning, verse 4. Pick it up in the middle of the verse. He talks about ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Now listen. And who deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Jude is saying, hey, Jesus has the right to demand obedience from his followers. Because he's sovereign. He's Lord. Drop down to verse 8. Look at the middle of the verse, again, describing ungodly people who pollute their own bodies. That's another reference to sexual immorality. But now look at the next line, and who reject what? Authority, reject it. Ungodly people, Jude says, reject authority. Most notably, Jesus' authority. Go down to verse 11. Look at the last line of this verse. I know I'm skipping through here. I I just want you to see how this anti-authority attitude pops up again and again and again in Jude. Last line of verse 11, he speaks of people who are like those who were destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, Now here is where he's quoting, referring to one of those Old Testament stories that he knows his listeners would have been familiar with. Some of us aren't familiar with the story, so let me recap it for you. Back in the days of Moses, after God delivered his people from 400 years of bondage in Egypt and pointed them toward the promised land, the people began to rebel against Moses' leadership. There was grumbling in the camp. One dude in particular, a guy by the name of Korah, you know, he took offense at Moses' leadership. On one occasion, he says to Moses, yeah, like, you think you're the only leader around? You don't think other people like, like me, like we, we don't have leadership gifts? And eventually he led a mini rebellion. There were 250 people who joined him, disgruntled customers. You know what God did to those folks? He wiped them out. You, you could read about it in Numbers in chapter six, Numbers chapter 16. God doesn't take kindly to a grumbling, rebellious, anti-authority attitude, whether, whether people are bucking his authority 
or, or they're bucking the authority of any legitimate leader that God has put in their lives. Whether, whether that leader be a parent. Hey, listen to me, students. Okay, Jude's addressing an anti-authority attitude. Are you guilty of that with regard to your mom and dad or teachers or bosses or police officers, though those who pull you over when you drive too fast? Or coaches? Or pastors? Or I talked earlier about a community group. You get in a community group and it's led by someone. Do you have a hard listen, do you have a hard time submitting to authority? Do you make it difficult for people to lead you? I'll tell you something I've recognized over the years of, of leading people. People don't buck sideways. They buck up. Okay, that's why their bucking is often unnoticed by others. See, they don't buck against their friends. They, they, they don't buck against teammates. They don't buck against other members of the church. They don't buck against coworkers. They buck up. So all these other people think they're just wonderful, but pity the poor person who's got to lead them. So are you a person who bucks up? Because I want to warn you about something. If, if you buck up against human authority, the chances are pretty good that you also buck up in your relationship with Jesus. That you love him as Savior, but you tend to resist him when he plays the Lord card in your life. So I'd say to you, if you find yourself doing that today, you know, best place to start is just resubmit to say, you know, Lord, I think you put your finger on something in my life. I tend to buck up against your authority, and I want to learn how to submit. I want to learn how to follow you wholeheartedly. You get it? Good. Third, balance here. God both loves and judges. If you want to avoid abusing grace, if you want a balanced view of grace, you need to recognize that God both loves and judges. Now, in spite of Luke's in-your-face approach in this epistle, he can't resist the urge to frequently refer to God's love. In fact, he can't get through the opening greeting without mentioning God's love no less than three times. Okay, if you got your Bible open to Jude, first verse, middle of the verse, he speaks to those who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Circle the word loved. Verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Circle the word love. Verse 3 begins, dear friends. Now, we don't see it in our English, but that expression, dear friends, is actually a translation of the Greek that means literally here, loved ones. Or people loved by God. Same expression that he uses down in verse 17. But dear friends, same expression he uses in verse 20. But you, dear friends, every time he says it, he's saying, loved ones. Yeah, people whom God loves. So he re reminds us again and again in this epistle that God loves. However, we might be tempted to conclude that God's love for people causes him to turn a blind eye to their sins. Or that God's love for people means that he automatically forgives them and never punishes them for their sins. The famous French philosopher and atheist Voltaire, he was on his deathbed and a friend asked him the question, Voltaire, aren't you just a wee bit concerned that maybe there is a God out there and like very soon you may come face to face with him? And Voltaire's response, somewhat cavalierly, somewhat cocky, he said, well, then God will forgive because that's his job. God will forgive 
that's his job. Friends, I want to say that's abusing grace. That's abusing grace. I, I get really nervous when I hear people overuse the phrase, God loves us just the way we are. God loves us just the way we are. God loves us just the way we That's a truth. But it's only half the story. If we refuse to turn from our sins, God judges us. And we don't have the time to take a close look at verses 5 to 7, but if you read verses 5 to 7 sometime on your own, there are three Old Testament illustrations, three stories from the Old Testament that illustrate God judging sin. God judges, God judges, God judges. Jude wants us to keep that in mind. Drop down to verse 14. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. To what? To judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. See, a balanced view of grace keeps in mind that God not only loves, loves us richly, loves us lavishly, but if we, if we refuse to allow that love to soften our hearts and come to him in repentance for our sins daily, keeping a clean slate, we're in danger of facing God's judgment. That's a balanced view of grace. God both loves and judges. Turn from your sins. You know, if you find yourself here today in a pattern of sin, whatever it is, it, it may be sexual immorality, it may be something else, today is the day to turn from that and turn back to God and receive his forgiveness. Fourth balance. Spiritual health requires both kept and keep. Now, as I explain what, what I mean by this last one, and this is a really important one, I'm going to ask the bands at all four of our campuses to come on stage. In just a few moments, we're, we're going to sing a worship song together and collect our gifts, our offerings. But I want you to pay close attention to this last balance statement. Look at the, the last line of verse 1. The last line of verse 1 says, We are kept for Jesus Christ. Circle the word kept there. And answer the question, who is it that's keeping us? We're kept for Christ. Who's keeping us? What, what, what is implied here? Call it out if you think you know. Who's keeping us? Okay, you're a bit hesitant. God's keeping us. And drop down to verse 24, the close of the epistle. To him who is able to keep you, Circle the word keep, to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, with great joy. Once again, Jude is telling us that God, listen friends, God will graciously keep us on the right path. This is such an important truth to hang on to because if you think, listen, if you think that following Christ depends entirely upon you, if you think that it's up to you, to, you know, to work up the willingness and the energy to resist temptation in your life, to clean up your life, if it's up to you, you know, to, to, to produce the energy and the willingness to read your Bible or serve the poor or forgive those who offend you or share Christ with others or build a healthy marriage, if all this depends on you, you're toast. You're just toast. No, the, the willingness, the energy to follow Christ comes from God. It comes from God. It's the beauty of the Christian life. You are being kept. 
You are being kept on the right path by him. On the other hand, this is the balance. Don't assume that this is some sort of, of an automatic, uh, a spiritual autopilot. You know, you just kind of hit a button and God takes over. There's nothing for you to do. When I hear people say, let go and let God, that's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me. I want you to know that is not in the Bible. Let go and let God. Look, look, look at verse 21. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Who does the keeping there? Call it out. We do. Jude says, keep yourselves. You say, wait, wait, wait. He said, God's going to keep me right. It's both. See, God's going to keep you on the right path. However, you have a responsibility here too to keep yourself in God's love. See, God's love is like this raging river. God loves to have that river wash over you and bring grace and blessing to your life. But you can step out of the path of that river. You can go over here and over here. You can miss it. Jesus tells us how to stay in his love. In John 15, verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. If you keep my commands, in other words, if you don't walk in obedience to Christ, you don't remain in his love. Here is this river of love that God wants to wash over you. And you're over here, you're over here, not remaining in that love. This is why the Aha Moments campaign, friends, is so critical. You know, how can you keep God's commands if you don't know what they are? How can you know what they are if you're not reading His Word? This is why you need to become a Bible reader. This is why you need to discuss God's Word in the context of a community group and apply it to your life so that you could remain in the love of Christ, so that you can keep yourself in His love even as He keeps you on a daily basis. Now, one last note, and then we're going to sing this song together that has to do with Christ influencing every aspect of our lives. We're going to sing the first verse of the song, Sitting Down, and then the musicians will ask you second verse to stand to your feet, so we'll collect our gifts during the first verse. And then I'll come back out here in St. Charles and close in prayer. The regional campus pastors will close at the other campuses. But just a, a tag to this whole thing, as you're reading through God's Word, this week, starting in Nahum and then moving on to Jonah. If you're struggling, like what, do I, what am I supposed to get out of this? Just keep in mind, I blog twice a week and I follow the reading schedule. I comment on the reading schedule. My goal is to be your coach. So anytime you want, go online to biblesavvy.com, okay, and you'll find, click on blog, and you see tomorrow what I'm getting out of Nahum.